when john okay the story begins welcome friends we are on page eight we're continuing the second half of the prayer let's quickly read through the prayer we'll take it from the top we're going to begin explaining and exploring from the second half but we'll read through the whole thing real quickly just so we get the gist of what's going on top of page eight may it be your will lord my god god of my fathers to protect me this day and every day from insolent insolent men and from impudence from a wicked man from an evil companion from an evil neighbor and from the evil occurrence from an evil eye from malicious from a malicious tongue from slander, from false testimony, from men's hate, from, help me out here, <laughs> I'm better with the Hebrew, from calumnious charges, calumnious, calumnious cal cal charges, okay. That, that's an interesting word. I'm not even sure what that means. Anybody know what that means? Uh, oh, I was no. first saying it's related to calamity, but I guess it's a different word. Must be false. False charges. I guess, I guess false charges, accusations from unnatural death, from harsh diseases, and from misfortune, from the destructive adversary. Adversary. Adversary, sorry. And from and from a heart. It's we should do this in Hebrew, man. And from a harsh judgment <laughs> from an implacable opponent, whether or not he is a member of the covenant, and from retribution of Gehinnom. You well, pronounced that last one really well. There we go. Thank you. <laughs> well, those okay. are the ones I stumble on, the ones in italics, because that's when I really need the Hebrew. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we started off with the first half, a prayer for, for um, helping us withstand intimidation. Let us not be intimidated by people, by evil neighbors, by the evil eye, ayin hara, which we discussed what that means last week, seeing things from a negative uh, perspective. We're now right in the middle, smack in the middle of the prayer. It's one, two, three, four, five lines from the top. From a malicious tongue. Right? God, spare us from a malicious tongue. I'm going to refer to the Hebrew, which is four lines from the top. It's the beginning of the line. You see it? Milashon hara. We ask God to spare us from lashon hara. Lashon hara means evil tongue, evil, evil language, tongue, right? Evil language, talking negatively about people. Talking negatively about people is a lot of fun, <laughs> and it's it's very. <laughs> How would you know that? <laughs> <laughs> It's very difficult to refrain from. It, it's pr probably one of the most difficult sins to refrain from. Keeping kosher may or may not be hard, but you know, you, there's always other things to eat. I guess there's other things to talk about, but but talking about people is just so natural. And Judaism frowns upon it. Um, a great deal to the extent that there, there's a book authored by Rabbi Yisrael Meir Kagan, known as the Chafetz Chaim. He lived about a little over 100 years ago. 
And he authored several series on the laws of Lashon Hara, the philosophy of Lashon Hara, of, uh, of evil tongue. Fascinating read. He points out that if you were to, if one were to eat non-kosher, God forbid, it's a biblical prohibition, right? The Torah says don't eat pork. Don't, don't eat that, you know. It's a, but if one were to speak Lashon Hara, talk bad about somebody, it actually violates close to a dozen biblical prohibitions. The prohibition of not hating your fellow, of not loving your fellow, of not taking vengeance, the, the prohibition of, of not speaking badly about people. There's all these various prohibitions in which it falls under. Yet, as Jews, we tend to be so careful with what we put in our mouth, we should be at least as careful with what comes out of our mouth for that same reason. We have to ask God to help us. God, help us watch our tongue because it, it really is natural. There's different types of lashon hara, of evil tongue, of, of, of uh, negative speech about people. Um, the concept of negative speech, by the way, you know, some people say, yeah, but it's true. Well, that's when it's prohibited. <laughs> if it weren't to be true, it would have been a different sin, which is called motzi shemra, which basically means false uh, slanderer, being a slanderer. But over here, this is a different uh, type of sin. It's, it, it's specifically prohibited when it's true. In his book, the Chafetz Chaim, that talks about the laws and gives perspective on Lashon Hara, he points out something interesting. He says, look throughout history. Every time in history, biblical, biblical history, someone spoke Lashon Hara, someone spoke um, badly about someone or negatively about someone, some sort of catastrophe occurred. Global catastrophe. Start with the first biblical instance of Lashon Hara. So God creates Adam and Eve. He tells Adam and Eve, you got one job, don't mess it up. Guess what they did, <laughs> right? Don't eat from that fruit, from the fruit. Don't eat from that tree of knowledge. They messed it up. But who persuaded Chava, Eve, to eat from the tree? The snake. And what was the snake's persuasion? The snake spoke Lashon Hara. The snake spoke negatively. The snake said, you know, God is just doesn't want you to eat that because he doesn't want you to become knowledgeable. The snake framed God in a uh, as an evil, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Manipulative. Mani as, as being manipulative, it was Lashon Hara. And it ended up persuading Chavate from the fruit and the world changed. From then on, we internalized the negativity of the world. We internalized the snake. We internalized the, the Yetzer Hara. They were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and the world became a very mundane place, a very self-centered, pleasure-seeking place that we, Baruch Hashem, have the opportunity to illuminate. Okay, next instance of Lashon Hara. We know that Joseph and his brothers, whom... They did not, uh, whom he did not get along with at all. They sold him to Egypt and all. One of the reasons why they didn't like him is because he slandered them. Right? 
Now, we say that ultimately Joseph went to Egypt, and because he went to Egypt, he was able to save the brothers and save the entire Jewish people because he became the viceroy of Egypt, enabling everybody to get food during the famine. So a question but, on that. Yeah. So when, whenever I think about Joseph, <clears throat> I, I think of Joseph as like one of, one of the ultimate tzaddiks. I mean, he, I mean, the fact that he was able to, you know, be in Egypt, Egypt and still remain true to Hashem, right? Mm-hmm. So, so it, what, what you're suggesting then is that he wasn't always the ultimate tzaddik, that in his younger years, that he sinned. Um, good, good question. It, if you look at the text, it definitely seems as if Joseph had... Um, you know, was challenged in many ways. The brothers were challenged. There is a lot more to the story. And the commentaries and the Kabbalists go very deep into it. And it's, it's, it's quite fascinating. It's quite fascinating. But um, it all boils down to miscommunication. But if you look at the text itself, the literal text, there's multiple layers to Torah. He reported Lashon Hara about his brothers. He understood the brothers. Uh, he said that the brothers were um, were eating uh, meat from a live animal, limbs from, uh, from a live animal, which is prohibited. He was saying all sorts of gossip. And ultimately, it was a misunderstanding. It was a miscommunication. And there's fascinating depth behind that story, but we'll have to save that for another time, maybe after the recording, because it's felt. I got remind me, I got to tell you something fascinating. We'll, we'll uh, keep it bonus, extra credit. But what happened was we ended up going down to Egypt, joining Joseph as slaves. Were he to have never been sold down to Egypt because he got along with his brothers? We never would have been slaves in Egypt. Now, technically, that was part of the plan. We were supposed to be slaves in Egypt. Fine. But, you know, that's God's business. But in terms of uh, of him, co- happened to be, he, he was the cause. Okay. Next incident. The beginning of the book of Exodus. Moses is walking around Egypt. Um, can't tolerate the pain that his brethren are in as slaves in Egypt. He sees a Jew being beaten by an Egyptian. Moses looks to the right, looks to the left. Nobody's watching. He takes out that Egyptian who's beating up one of his fellow Jews, buries him in the sand. Took him out, buries him in the sand. Okay. Moses continues walking around, and he sees two, bro- two people fighting, Dasan and Aviram. He sees them fighting. Moses says, hey, what's going on? Why are you guys fighting? Stop it. They say, Moses, are you going to kill us like you killed that Egyptian? And Moses' response, ooh. (laughs) Oh, no. Moses feared. That's what the Torah says. He feared. What, What did he fear? Okay, there's multiple layers to the text here, but on a very simple level, he feared that Pharaoh was going to find out and he's going to lose his life. He's going to, he ran away. The Midrash says something a little bit different. It might be the Talmud. It says something a little bit different. Why did Moses fear? He didn't fear for his own life. He feared for them. How are the Jewish people going to rede- be redeemed from slavery if they're speaking negatively about one another? 
if they're not united? How are they going to be redeemed from slavery, redeemed from exile, if they're not getting along? We have to be one to get out of here. We have to be one and united to survive. And speaking negatively about that, uh, about one another, it can help. And that's where Moses' fear came from. Okay, next incidents in the Torah. There's many more. I'm just giving some key ones. Uh, but the spies. Moses sends 12 spies to the land of Israel as we were heading toward Israel, right? Moses sends 12 spies to scout out the land. Tells the best point of entry. The spies came and decided to give an opinion rather than facts. And their opinion was, we shouldn't be going here. We can't handle it. Um, that was 10 out of 12 spies, right? Joshua and Caleb were, were the good boys, the goody goodies. The entire Jewish nation was intimidated. God got upset that we bought into their Lashon Hara. Because again, the prohibition of Lashon Hara is also hearing it and believing it, not only saying it. Um, what was the punishment for that? The retribution, if you will, or the what? wandering the desert for 40 years? Took 40 years to fix that sin. 40 years, which is pretty crazy. In his introduction to the book Chafetz Chaim, the book on Lashon Hara that we're referencing, he points out something fascinating. Why was the second base of Mikdash destroyed, the second temple destroyed, compared to the first? The first was destroyed because Jews were engaged in idolatry. But why was the second destroyed? Because Jews couldn't get along with each other. Jews couldn't get along with each other, right? So he said, I'm writing this book because the base of Mikdash was destroyed because we couldn't get along. So in order to promote peace and love, unity, I'm writing this book to help rebuild the base of Mikdash. That's what he writes in his introduction. But I want to tell you something fascinating. How much time was there between Beis Hamikdash number one and number two? Four hundred years, or is it two hundred years? So, so the Heavily. first one lasted four hundred and ten years, but once it was destroyed, until the second one was built or started to be built, how much time was there? How how long did that exile last for? Seventy. Seventy years. Seven zero. That's just to give. Uh, so just to put things in chronological, um, just to help us place things chronologically. We leave Egypt, 40 days later, get the Torah, 40 years later, enter Israel. Um, there's still no permanent structure to the, to, to the Mishkan, to the temple, until several hundred years later, King David, right, and Solomon. That's the first Beit HaMikdash. That lasts 410 years. The Babylonians destroy it. We now go to exile in Babylon. This is when the story of Purim takes place. Okay, finally, at the end of 70 years, exile is over. And Ezra, the one who established many of these prayers and blessings, takes many of the Jewish people back to Israel and rebuilds the second temple. 420 years later, the second temple is destroyed for the reason that we mentioned. We couldn't get along with one another. Are we familiar with the story, the famous story? Raise your hand if you're familiar with the story of why the second temple was uh, destroyed. If you're familiar with it, I don't. I won't share it. If you aren't familiar with it, I'm happy to share it. Please share. 
so the story is from the Talmud. There was these two people. One was Kamtsa, one was Bar Kamtsa. They had similar names. Kamtsa was good buddies with this wealthy guy. Um, Bar Kamtsa and this wealthy person were enemies. They didn't get along with one another. The wealthy person was putting on a banquet, some sort of celebration. And he tells his butler, invite Kamtsa, don't invite Bar Kamtsa. And don't you dare confuse the two. And of course, he confuses the two. He invites Bar Kamtsa. <laughs> Bar Kamtsa shows up. He's all excited. He wants to make peace with me. The um, host says, what are you doing here? You invited me. He says, no, I didn't. The butler, he made a mistake. He says, you need to leave. He says, look, don't embarrass me. Just let me stay. I'll pay for my meal. And he says, no, I don't want your money. I want you out. He says, I'll pay for half the party. I'll get the money somehow. Just don't embarrass me. He says, out. I'll pay for the entire party. Send me the bill at the end. I just don't want to be embarrassed. Out. He picks him up. He throws him out. As you can imagine, Barkamsa is mortified. But what mortified him most was everybody else standing idly, allowing this to happen, including dignitaries. So Bar Kamsa went to the Roman emperor. The Romans and the Jews had a very um, rocky relationship. But I think at this point in time, it was relatively amicable. And he tells the Roman emperor, Jews don't like you. He says, Jews love me. What are you talking about? He says, I'll prove it to you. Donate an animal as an offering to the Beit HaMikdash, and you'll see they won't accept it because they don't like you. They donated an animal to the Beit HaMikdash. And by the way, the Beit HaMikdash was open to donations from people of all nations. But what Bar Kamta did was he snuck in the middle of the night and blemished the animal making it impure. He nicked its lip or its eye or whatever it was. Um, disqualifying it as an offering. They weren't able to take it as an offering. It was against biblical law to take it as an offering. They took personal offense, obviously, because they were framed by Bar Um And that's when the base of Mikdash was destroyed by the Romans. The Romans came and infiltrated. And that's wherein we mark Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av every summer. Essentially, hatred destroyed the Beis HaMikdash. Love is going to rebuild it. And it starts with biting our tongue <laughs> when necessary. There's a whole fascinating discussion in Halacha. When is Lashon Hara permitted? I'll give you an example. We've been doing, I've been doing uh, interviews for our camp counselors. Around now is when we start camp planning. Did five interviews yesterday. <laughs> and we get, uh, we, th thank God, we really get, you know, we only have a limited amount of spots available and we get a lot of applicants. We've gotten so far 16 applicants. There's only six spots, five spots available. Uh, given the size camp we have. So I have to research the applicants. What am I allowed to ask the references? What are the references allowed to tell me? When is it Lashon Hara? And when is it this is useful information? 
right? And there is a line. We're not suggesting that you have to hide something bad about somebody if it's going to hurt other people, God forbid. But what we are saying is the general rule of thumb is information is allowed on a need-to-know basis, not on a want-to-know basis. And that's essentially what Lashon Hara is. And the ethics of it is fascinating. It really is fascinating. We had a class on this in JLI a little while ago, a couple of years ago. It was, it was really fascinating. Oh, here's what I wanted to point out. Between Beis HaMikdash number one and number two, how many years? 70, right? Between Beis HaMikdash number two and number three, how many years? We don't know yet. We don't know yet, right? But we know it's more than 2,000. We're close to 2,000. Okay, so to fix idolatry, if you offend God, it takes a good 70 years to amend. But if we hurt people, how many years does it take to amend? Long, 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 long. So long far, time. at least 2,000 years. And one of the reasons is because Offending God is obviously, if you're a believer, it's obvious that it's wrong. If you're a believer in God, then idolatry is wrong. You could easily fix it because you could identify the problem. But when it comes to offending people, when it comes to Lashon Hara, when it comes to hatred, all of these different things, we tend to justify them so easily. We have very good reasons why we should have said what we said and why somebody else shouldn't have said what they did say. We, we have... Very good reasons. Um, it's harder to rectify for that very reason. It's harder to fix a relationship with people than it is a relationship with God. I'll give you another uh, illustration just to, to depict this. God destroyed the entire world with the flood in the days of Noah. What were people doing that were so wrong that merited this? Robbery. Robbery. They weren't getting along with each other. They weren't respecting each other. Fast forward the next generation, the Tower of Babel, the Babylonian Tower, where God, where they all tried building that tower to rebel against God. And what did God do to them? Mixed up their languages. Mixed up their languages. He didn't wipe them out. He didn't kill them. He gave them other, another chance at life. And Rashi points out over there, we see here, if you rebel against people, <laughs> you get wiped out. God has to start over. Wipe out the world. But if we rebel against God, you get another chance. God is tolerant when we offend him. He's less tolerant when we offend each other. It's for this reason where, why we ask, God, spare me from Lashon Hara, from evil speech. There's another place in davening where we beseech God to spare us from negative speech. Anybody know where? I'm going to give you a hint if you want a hint. If you don't want a hint, I won't give it to you. Okay, repeat the question. There's one other place, at least one other place, in davening daily where we ask God to help us um, with negative speech. Is it um, the bedtime prayers? No, at least not what I was thinking of. Hmm. Guard my tongue from evil. You got it. You got it. Take a look on 53. The end of the Amida. Last paragraph, beginning of the paragraph, bottom of 53. 
My God, guard my tongue from evil and my lips from speaking deceitfully. So we start the morning. It's not the way beginning, but with God. <laughs> guard my tongue. We end the prayers, the Amida prayer. It's not the culmination of the entire prayers. With God, guard my tongue. This really has a central and important, uh, this, this is really important in Judaism, it really is. And it's as difficult as it is important. Okay. Next. Any, before we move on, any questions thought, uh, or comments, thoughts, reflections? So, um, as, as we've been talking about this, I've been thinking about something that I had learned in the past, and I can't recall if it's directly associated with, with the topic of Lashon Hara or not, but what I was thinking was, um, you know, why Lashon Hara is just so bad is that um, uh, the analogy was, was um, well, basically the bottom line is you can never take it back. It's, it's, it's something that it gets out it can't be taken back and it, and it, it spreads and it's un uncontrollable at that point. And, and that's, you know, but I, I can't remember if that point it was related to the discussion about Lashon Hara or something else. So, so I'm glad you mentioned that there's an idea called, there's the famous leprosy in the Torah, biblical leprosy. Sara'at. You familiar with that? Yeah. Familiar with the biblical leprosy? Yes. The Torah describes a, a particular type of leprosy that would appear on one's skin, on one's home, even on one's clothing. And this leprosy would appear when one would speak Lashon Hara in biblical times. And when one uh, developed this leprosy, leprosy is just a translation, but it's a, it was a very specific uh, breed, if you will, of leprosy. When one were to uh, develop this leprosy, they are considered to be impure and they have to leave the encampment. So there was this camp centered around the tabernacle in the desert or centered around the temple in Jerusalem. And they had to leave the boundaries. They couldn't be there. They had to be by themselves. And the Talmud explains they made people lonely by talking bad about them. They're now going to experience the loneliness. They have to be away from people. They've separated people. They need to separate themselves. They need to be able to empathize with the pain that they've caused to others. The Torah then says that they have to bring a special offering. There's unique offerings for different times for different sins. The offering that was brought in this particular instance were two birds. And there was a whole service performed. One bird was sacrificed. The next bird was sent free. And the Talmud explains that this person was chatting and chirping about people like a bird. So his offering is two birds. One bird, the negative speech that's sacrificed. But then he has to replace that with a positive bird, which represents speech, chirping, talking about people. That's going to go fly away. That's going to be the positive speech that he's hopefully going to replace. Words of Torah, words of love, words of affirmation. Let's take a look at the next portion. Before we do. Yes. Um, now I'm thinking about donkeys. 
<laughs> because your story just made me think about is it donkeys or goats? Uh, but but like something about a donkey getting thrown over a hill. What's what's that story about? Why am I thinking about it? <laughs> okay, you're thinking. Have you heard the term scapegoat? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Right, that's a biblical term. <laughs> that was the offering. The offering of Yom Kippur was a scapegoat. So that's, that's okay. Or so all the sins. <laughs> yeah, I was actually thinking that as I was saying that, um, all the sins were were. Uh, place on that goat essentially and that goat was given as a sacrifice and that was referred to as the scapegoat and that's where the term scapegoat actually comes from but it wasn't there uh, a choice between goats or something like that yeah and there were one, two goats one... and there was a raffle between the two one of them there's a whole okay all right yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no no you're you're on the right track you're... thank you <laughs> you're on the right track yeah i have a question yeah so, so what about, okay, so it's Lashon Hara. So then what about um, if someone does it non-verbally by keeping quiet and still by the non-verbals giving the impression that that, that person's not right and they're doing like ugly stuff, you know? Right, like they, it's, and it's true, but it's like by just by rolling their eyes or doing something really like, yeah. E excellent question. Excellent question. That would be considered lashon hara. It would be considered so lashon. lashon hara. Any does communication. Not what? Yeah. No. It, any it, communication. Communication. Even if it's not verbal. Exactly. Yeah. And by the way, even positive communication that opens up, that invites people to negative communication, um, um has an element of lashon hara to it. If I yeah, know I there's someone something... you don't like and I start saying positive things about them and you're going to say, oh, mm. you don't know the whole story. Yeah, but I also heard you're not allowed to compliment someone because if you compliment someone in front of someone else, it might be that they start belittling them. Which so, is so the in, same. Exactly. And, that, and that's in a situation where you know that that if where it may invite them to say something negative. Yeah. If, if you don't think that's going to happen, that that's the situation, you could read the situation. But you can't compliment. You just, you, it's, there's nothing to do about complimenting. You, I mean, you, you could if, it depends on the situation. It, if your compliment is an invitation for negative then speech. Then it's a problem. Then, then, a problem. then you've got a negative, ex, a negative thing that you want to get out of it. There's second exactly. game. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Next we say, so God save us from malicious tongue, from Lashon Hara. The next word is Mimalshinut, from slander. Slander is another form of Lashon Hara, of talking negatively about people. Slander can also mean um, the concept of informing. There's a biblical prohibition of informing on Jewish people, unless they're, God forbid, dangerous to, uh, to society. Um, but there's a whole discussion about that. But assuming somebody's not a danger to society, um, thank God in America it's not such an issue. But let's say religion was illegal, right? So informing on other Jewish people and causing other Jewish people harm in that sense would be considered to be um, a prohibition. Slandering other people in any context, the idea of slandering is is considered to be a prohibition it's so easy these days by the way with facebook 
and social media, um, especially <laughs> if you're a, if you're a celebrity or a politician, you're setting everybody up for failure. <laughs> Don't become a politician. Otherwise you're going to get everybody to slander and get everybody to sin. Is <laughs> Okay, next we say, I'm going to read the Hebrew. It's the fourth line, middle of the line, where it says, Me'edut Sheker. Asking God, spare us from false testimony. Essentially, we're saying, spare us from all of these sins that are between man and man. Not just between man and God. And one of them is false testimony. Now, how many of us are brought to court to testify on a regular basis? Right. What is the relevance of this, of this prayer? False testimony doesn't have to be only in court. Another way to look at it is we're asking God, let us not feel like hypocrites. Let us not feel hypocritical. How often do we feel that, am I really a believer? I have doubts. Maybe I'm being a hypocrite. When you can if we're being honest, we could really put it the other way around. Do I really have doubts? I have faith. Maybe I'm being a hypocrite. <laughs> but we, we have that type of self-doubt where we say, how can I engage in my Jewish heritage if I'm not doing this, this, and that? When we could easily ask ourselves the other way around, how could I engage in this, this, and that if I'm so connected with my Jewish heritage? So that's just being honest. That's being introspective. The other one is being hypocritical, is seeing ourselves as hypocritical as if we're bearing false testimony. And we're asking God, let us not experience that. Let us not experience the feeling of hypocrisy. Let us, not let us represent you, not falsely. The Jewish people, by the way, are referred to in the book of Isaiah as witnesses. We're all witnesses here to testify God. What is a witness's job? To share classified information that nobody else saw. Well, there's something your soul knows very well that not everybody knows. And our job is to share that classified information. There's a God. This God is relevant. This God is the creator, and this God needs every single one of us, every single human being. Take a look at the Shema. I don't know if I pointed this out to you before in the past. Take a look at the Shema on page 42. You see it? So we say, Shema Yisrael, Hero Israel, Hashem Elokeinu, the Lord is our God, Hashem Echad, God is one. So if you look at the Ayin, third letter of the word Shema, and the Dalit, Third letter of the word Echad, the last letter. Both of those letters are of larger fonts. That's how they are in the Torah as well. When you read that sentence in the Torah, you're going to see the ayin is larger than the rest of the font of the typeset or writing set, <laughs> rest of the fonts, and the dalit is larger. Ayin dalit, what does that spell? Aid, witness. When we recite the Shema, and when we internalize the message of the Shema, that there's one God and this one God is relevant. 
we're testifying something that is classified to human nature. It's classified, I mean, it's available information for everybody who wants it, but it certainly is not intuitive um, in the world we live in. It's something we need to really meditate on. I know a good course about that, by the way. It's something we really need to meditate on, think about free advertising, think about and really, and really um, process that God is one and share in a very palpable and meaningful way. We are witnesses to share that. God, let us not bear false testimony. Let us not be false witnesses. Let us be genuine, real, true witnesses. The Talmud says when somebody says, wears, uh, says the Shema but doesn't wear the tefillin, it, there's an element of false testimony there because the Shema says put on the tefillin. But it's that idea of congruence. Let us truly... What, what we are representing, let our external behavior be a representation of our truest values that we believe in as Jews. I'll tell you a beautiful insight. Two parshas ago, we read the Ten Commandments. There's a debate how many commandments there were. According to Mel Brooks, it was the 15 commandments. <laughs> um, so we read the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments were on two tablets. They were read hieroglyphically, top to bottom, right? Five on each tablet, top to bottom. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. Commentaries point out, though, that they can also be read horizontally, which means commandment number one and number five. Number two. One and six. Two, what? One number six. one. Sorry, they don't. Yeah, my math is off. <laughs> This is sophisticated, man. I can't do this. In yeshiva, they teach us math in multiples of 18. So that's all I can do. Okay, so, so commandment number one and number six are correlated. Number two, let me add here, and number seven, etc. right? So the commandment, commandment number, commandment number, help me out here, commandment number four, or three, whatever it is. The commandment of keep Shabbos and celebrate Shabbos corresponds to the commandment of, so that's commandment number four, corresponds to commandment number eight, number nine, number nine. nine, do not bear false testimony. Shabbos is testimony that God is the creator of the world. He created the world in six days. He rested on the seventh. We're asking God over here, let us not bear false testimony. Spare us from false testimony. Let us be true examples and represent representatives of your truest values that you are the creator of the world. Okay. Questions, comments, thoughts before we move on. Okay. Then we say from false testimony, one, two, three, four, five, six, six lines from the top. From men's hate, save us from being hated by people. Now, since when do we care about other people in that sense? <laughs> it's kind of funny. Let, us not be, let me not be hated by people. Well, it says in Pirkei Avot, what would best indicate that God is happy with you? If people are happy with you, 
because a relationship with God, a relationship with people go hand in hand. That's why the Ten Commandments are on two different tablets. The first are of commandments between man and God, the second between man and people, and both tablets are of equal importance. So spare us from people's hate. Spare us from columnists, did I pronounce that right? Columnist charges from unnatural death, from harsh diseases, from misfortune, from the destructive adv adversary. Did I pronounce that right? Destructive adversary. Let's look at that in the Hebrew. It's the third to last line. It's the middle of the line. Umi Satan Hamashchit. Do you see that? Satan. The Satan. The destroying Satan. The destructive Satan. Spare me from the destructive Satan. People always ask. I didn't know the Satan was a Jewish thing. I thought that was a Christian thing. The Satan is a... Actually, I wouldn't say he's Jewish, but <laughs> but it definitely is a Jewish Jew. concept. It definitely exists in, in... I mean, it exists clearly in the Bible. The Talmud says the Satan... What is a Satan, by the way? A Satan. Opponent. Your Satan, what? Opponent. An opponent. A prosecutor. It's not a little red guy with horns and a pitchfork and a long tail that puffs up on your shoulder. It's a... It's a heavenly prosecutor. There's a prosecutor called the Satan. There's a... What was I going to say? There's the prosecutor called the Satan. There's the Yetzer Hara, the evil inclination. And there's the Malach Hamavet. There's the angel of death. And the Talmud says these three characters are all really the same. The Yetzer Hara gets us to sin. The Satan prosecutes us. And then the angel of death gets retribution from us. But they're all the same character, wearing three different hats, which doesn't seem very fair, by the way. <laughs> Can you say the angel of death carries out the sentence? Yeah, carries out the sentence of the prosecutor. Exactly. Exactly. But the truth is, the truth is, these, we mentioned this in our Tanya classes, that the Yetzer Hara actually wants us to succeed. The Zohar, one of the earliest works of Kabbalah, gives an analogy of a king who wanted to test the morality of his prince. So he hired a promiscuous woman to try to entice him, hoping that the son is going to refrain. So the promiscuous woman hired by the king is an employee of the king. She wants the son to reframe as well. She's got a job to do. But she wants the king's, she wants the prince's success. The Yetzer Hara wants us to succeed. As much as God wants us to succeed. Yet the Yetzer Hara has a job. We mentioned the story of the Chafetz Chaim a few weeks ago, where he was relative, he was an old man. And he was at shul very early. So somebody said, Rabbi, you're old, you're retired. Why don't you sleep in a little bit? So he said, that's what my Yetzirah told me early this morning when I woke up. And he said, wait a minute, you're here pretty early at your job. <laughs> if you don't believe it in your own, uh, in your own um, persuasion, I can't believe it either. And he, and he showed up, woke up on time. 
the Talmud says that the Satan has more pain than even Eov, Job. Are you familiar with Job? Job went through an immense amount of pain. He, when, when we look at pain in biblical history, Job is exhibit A. Job is the model of pain. When you want to learn about suffering, about resilience, about endurance, we turn to Job. It's really a depressing book. Um, it's, a, it, it, it's fascinating, but it's, it's... Job lost all of his children, and essentially he was faithful, and the beginning of the book says he was basically tested by God, tested by the Satan. The Satan wanted to test him. But the Talmud says that the Satan was in more pain than Job himself, despite how much pain Job went through. Our Yetzir Hara, the evil inclination, wants us to win. But we're asking God, we need your help. Protect us from this Satan Hamashchis, from this harsh judgment. Okay. Sorry, not from this harsh judgment. From, from this destructive adversary. Okay. We're on back in the English. Fourth to last line. Sorry, third to last line from harsh judgment. Protect us from harsh judgment and from an implacable opponent. Whether or not he be a member of the covenant. There's a guy that I know, Jewish guy, businessman, who is being sued by one of his employees which apparently, unfortunately, is par for the course in the business world. But it's, it's causing him a lot of pain, a lot of distress. And he wanted to know what advice I have. This was back in the summer. I said, my advice is, is this case was coming up. Push your case off because the month of Av is not a good month. So he tells the judge, my rabbi suggested I don't do it this month. Can I do it later? The judge pushed it off. <laughs> it was really nice of the judge. But the Talmud says when you have a court case, don't do it during the month of Av. That's not a good time for the Jewish people. Do it during the month of Adar, the month we're in right now. Now we have two months of Adar because that's a month of joy. That's a good time to do it in. Um, in any case, we're asking God, let us avoid the situation of having a negative case against us in the first place, whether or not they be from the covenant, a member of the covenant or not. And finally, we ask God spare us from the retribution of Gehinnom. Gehinnom is hell purgatory. What is Gehinnom, by the way? It's this fiery place with devils that are, no, I'm kidding, in a dungeon, right? I'll, um, there's two types of Gehinnom. Gehenna means purgatory. It's a purging process. It's a cleansing process. The soul comes down to this world. And again, as we mentioned in our earlier prayers, bottom of page five, my God, the soul that you have given within me is pure. When he gave it to us, it was pure. <laughs> what did we do with it? It collects dirt. So it needs purgatory. It needs to be purged. It needs to be cleansed. And that's what Gehinnom is. There's two types of purgatory. There's what's called Gehinnom Shel Esh, the purgatory of fire. And that's probably the model that Hollywood has chosen to depict. But don't, 
don't get confused by Hollywood or, or Christian mythology. The second type of Gehenna is the Gehenna of snow. Shalshaleg. And what's explained is the transgression of negative commandments, of the don'ts. That requires cleansing through the Gehenna of fire. We were passionate about doing something we shouldn't have. That's We had a fire in us, so we... Fire has to be taken out with fire, cleansed with fire. When we neglect to do a mitzvah, that's the Gehenna of snow. That's a certain level of coldness, of apathy. But in any case, the concept of Gehenna is not so much a punishment as much as it is a cleansing process. The idea of going into fire, it's like silver. When you mine silver from the earth, you don't get these blocks of silver, these blocks of beautiful gold. You get this rusty, metallic, weird-shaped thing, and you have to smelt it in fire and burn away all the dirt. So this soul is a beautiful gem. It's beautiful, shiny silver, but it's buried in the earth. It collects schmutz. It needs a cleansing once in a while. By the way, the, the, the reason why we use the analogy of silver, the word silver in Hebrew, kesef, can also mean to pine, to be passionate about, to yearn, nichsof, to, to, to yearn. The soul is like this, silver is like this concept of yearning, but it has dirt, it has to be smelt, it has to be cleansed. And, th and, and that's exactly what Gehinnom is. And we're asking God, spare us from this need to be cleansed, let us retain our purity with it, which our soul came down with into this world. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it.